So the first reading, as Nigel has mentioned, is from Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. None call for justice. None plead their case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light but there is, but all is darkness. For brightness but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance but it is far away. For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fermenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. 
He put on righteousness as his breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Thank God there's good news amongst the bad. And so we turn to Mark chapter 1 and the first 11 verses. The beginning of the gospel, good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me, will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
If, like me, you're at home and self-isolating and listening to this on our website, then hello as well, welcome. Um, it's great uh, to speak to you, even if it is through technology. Um, if I haven't met you before, and I suppose I still haven't, uh, my name is Aidan and I'm the curate at Christchurch. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be continuing our Lent series on caring for God's creation. Uh, in week one, Paul talked about how, through Genesis 1 and 2, and he talked about how God is a creator God. He loves his creation. And we, as human beings made in his image, we are called to love and care for creation just as he does. But Paul highlighted how human beings uh, fall short of that call. And especially over the last few centuries, uh, we have neglected our call to serve and love creation. And instead, we have seen to be using and abusing the world and its resources. Then last week, Kathy spoke about how uh, mission is central to this idea. That, that actually, since Genesis 3, it has been God's mission to show his love for all of creation. And when it comes to responding to the climate crisis, the church doesn't just have to jump on But how throughout the Bible, God has been at work restoring and redeeming creation, all of it, not just human beings. Likewise, we as his church have always been called to play our part in declaring restoration and the redemption of all things. Now this morning we're going to conclude the first half of our series where we've been looking at the why part of caring for God's creation. The why question. Why should we care for his creation? Why should the church have a distinctive voice in the discussion around the climate crisis? In the final two weeks, uh, starting with next week, uh, we're going to really look at the kind of what and how do we respond to this, you know, what do we do? But this is the last kind of reason, looking at our hearts, going why. Now a clear theme that has been uh, developed through both Kathy and Paul's sermons is the lyric from the song Hosanna that says, break my heart for what breaks yours. And that is my aim this morning as well, to create space again for us to hear God's call to ask him to break our hearts in a way that his heart is breaking for creation. And this isn't so that we might feel guilty, no, but that we might live differently with a conviction. So not condemnation, but conviction that God is leading us. To do this, I want to reflect on an idea that uh, we hear a lot about in church, but I don't know if we actually dig deep into it very often. We're going to look at repentance and repentance through the idea of creation care. But before we do anything, shall we pray together? Father, I just pray that over these few minutes, as we think about repentance, as we think about caring for your creation, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, you would guide us, you would lead us to being the church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know that many people here at Christchurch are like me in that we didn't grow up in the kind of typical Anglican background. I didn't go to an Anglican church until I was 22 and uh, it wasn't until actually I started exploring ordination and then ended up at theological college that I heard about a thing called the lectionary and the church calendar 
Now this is potentially quite difficult over video, but uh, I wanna, I've got a quiz question and I'm gonna leave a pause. And if, uh, if you're listening, just shout this out uh, if you know the answer. So when in the church calendar, when does the church focus on confession and repentance? What day in the church calendar does the church focus on repentance? I hope that someone said the right answer there, otherwise you might have just had a bit of an awkward silence. Um, if you, hopefully, someone said the right answer, which is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, which is the first day in Lent. Now, if you're from a more traditional uh, kind of spirituality, that's your preferred spirituality, uh, and there are people like that at Christchurch, then Ash Wednesday services are very important. Um, they, are, they are a crucial part in your journeying with faith, and many churches uh, hold them very dear. But for those of us who come from a more low church or informal church background, uh, because we don't mark Ash Wednesday, actually sometimes I think we can miss the importance of confession and repentance and misunderstand them perhaps. Repentance is utterly central to the Christian faith and the Christian journey. So we can't misunderstand it, but I think it is bigger than maybe we give room for. So with that in mind, I want to ask uh, another question. And for this one, I want you to maybe turn to your neighbour if you're at church um, and you're going to have 30 seconds to answer it. What is repentance? How would you define repentance? We've got 30 seconds. You'll know when it finishes. Go. that one okay um <laughs> well so repentance what is repentance now i don't know what you had a conversation about i don't know what you thought about uh but hopefully this has got our minds working so that as i speak uh, it will go to you know your brains will be already there uh, and we've already been done half the work so i think there are three definitions of repentance that are kind of common and you may have talked about some of them the first of these is about guilt, that repentance is an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's an acknowledgement of sin, as the Bible calls wrongdoing. Now, repentance happens when we know we have done something wrong and we are sorry about it and we confess it to God. Now, whilst this is, of course, kind of correct, this is really only part of the story. And many of you, I reckon, will know that repentance is not just about guilt. So this definition of repentance being about guilt is not quite correct, not quite quite right. And there's a second option. So repentance, this this is perhaps more common that people might know that repentance is a change of direction, a turning away from sin and a walking in the new life of Christ. So repentance is not just about uh, admitting you've done something wrong, but it's about turning away from it and doing and walking in a new light. Now, if anything, if you're anything like me, then the main way in which you've heard someone talk about repentance uh, will be in regards to them coming to faith. 
You know, someone becomes a Christian and they turn away, the old has gone and the new has come. And correctly, people talk about how as we receive grace and forgiveness from God, that doesn't mean we should go on, carry on sinning and doing whatever we want. Actually, no, we are called into a different way of life. In Romans 6, Paul talks about our response to grace. And he says, you know, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So therefore, if we are repentant, even though we might struggle with sins, we turn away from it and live our, try to live our lives inspired by God rather than directed by our own sinful desire. And that, of course, is great. That is, that is a really key definition of repentance. But I think it's about personal repentance. And the problem with this is it limits repentance to just an individual act. It's only about a response to my own wrongdoing and an individual wrongdoing rather than I think something, uh, I think Christian repentance has to have a bigger definition than this. Why do I say this? Well, let's think about our passage from the New Testament that we have today, which is Mark chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. It's a story probably familiar to many of us, and it's in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But it's the story of Jesus' baptism when the heavens opened and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven declares, this is my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Mark, but what I find interesting in this uh, Gospel of Mark, and it's in Luke as well, is how the baptism of John is described. The baptism of John the Baptist in Mark 1 verse 4 says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus comes along and gets baptised in a baptism of repentance. How can Jesus repent? Because the Bible again and again says that Jesus was without sin. He was the sinless one. Why would Jesus get baptised in a baptism of repentance if all it's about is personal sin? You know, I've done this wrong, I need to repent. Well, it's because I think repentance is bigger than just a personal act and a personal turning away. And this is where I come to my third definition, which is my preferred one. Repentance is a way of living that acknowledges not only personal sin, but also the sins of the world. Repentant living bears the sins of the world and brings them to God, asking him to change the direction. Okay, that's quite a big thing, but let's dig into that. So Jesus got baptised in a baptism of repentance and lived a repentant life, not because he had personal sin to repent of and confess of, but because he was bearing the sins of humanity. To that extent, you could say that, that Jesus was repentant as he went to the cross and bore the punishment for all human sin. And took, he took the problem of sin to God and asked him to change the direction because God is the solution. So repentance is not just something we do on our own as part of our own work with God. But growing in our understanding of repentance gives us a way to respond to all the problems, all the sins of the world, you know, all the suffering. And when it comes to the environment, repentance gives us a language that we can bring all failings of humankind in how we have used and abused God's creation for our own gains. 
Our other reading was Isaiah 59. Uh, and for many of us, including me when I first started journeying with this, is this, this chapter and this type of chapter in the Bible seems really odd to us. It's really, it's kind of foreign language. Because this chapter is just one of many of uh, in the Old Testament that is all about corporate repentance, corporate uh, confession. The words of an individual writer leading a group of people in repentance. You know, reread it when you can uh, and you'll find and hear the voice of a people falling on their knees before God, acknowledging the problems of the world. Not only the sins of Isaiah, but of the whole nation of Israel and of humankind. And they're looking to him for the solution. It isn't personal shortcomings that are the focus, but how uh, the people of Israel have neglected justice. Are living lives that are the opposite of peaceful. And because of this, they are separated from the love and righteousness of God. And the final two verses of Isaiah 59 are telling because it doesn't say, right, we are sorry for this. We're going to do our best to live differently. We're going to turn our lives around. No, the solution to the problem is not in human effort, but it is in God. God changing things, breaking people's hearts for what breaks his and leading them into repentance. So that is my understanding of repentance and how perhaps it's something more important and bigger uh, and than the currently the church often gives credit for. But why do I talk about this today? Well, you know, how does this understanding of corporate repentance relate to our series and caring for God's creation? Well, if we look at those three definitions of repentance, we can see them in the response to the climate crisis. The first definition, centering on guilt and getting people to acknowledge guilt, is certainly something we see in the discourse. Now, I truly respect Greta, Greta Thunberg. I think she's doing amazing work. I think it is phenomenal that a now 17-year-old is able to get people talking about climate change in a way that generations of scientists haven't managed to do so. And her words are very powerful and challenging, but they are primarily focused on inspiring people out of a place of guilt. You know, speaking to world leaders at the UN, she famously said this, she said, you come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You've stolen, stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, yet I am one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Now they are pretty challenging words, very powerful, and they certainly have evoked a response. But I and many others are skeptical as to how far that response can, can go, because acting out of guilt rarely leads to a long-lasting change. Because then eventually people just become resentful of those who are saying that they are guilty. So let's turn to the second definition of repentance, of a personal act and of turning our lives around and this is this is equally a very powerful statement and for years we'll have known people in our church and in our communities who have lived a personal life of repentance repenting of how human beings have treated the planet but as we all know a few people that we might call eco-warriors a few people living sustainably is is not enough to arrest the effects of climate change 
So we need something bigger. And, and I'll finish with this because we come to our third definition of repentance and my preferred option, that it can be a corporate act, bringing the sins of the world to God and asking him to turn things around. Just as the sins committed in Isaiah 59 were, as Paul highlighted in week one, the problems with climate crisis is a justice issue where those most affected are some of the poorest in the world. Therefore, we need to learn to repent as a community, as a people, as the people in Israel did through Isaiah. We don't need people to live out of a sense of guilt and condemnation, but I pray people might live with the conviction that God loves them and God loves his creation. Rather than asking us to repent individually and become eco-warriors, it's my prayer that we might corporately repent and become an eco-church. And that is something that we're going to talk about more next week. But we're also going to create a space after I finish speaking for an act of repentance. As we repent corporately, bringing not only our own problems and our own sins, but also the sins of the whole world laying them at the feet of God and asking him to make a difference. And it's through the language of repentance, not guilt, the church can have a unique voice in the conversation around climate change. Because for a global solution, we need our almighty and all-loving God to change and break hearts for what breaks his. To care for God's creation, I pray that God would lead all humankind to our repentance so that we can love his creation as he does. Amen.